Will you join me to read Jonah 3, 10 through chapter 4, verse 11, uh, chapter, uh, page 775 in the Pew Bible? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is what I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to anger, to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah, that it might be a shade cover his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on his head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Will you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your almighty name here on earth. Father, we ask you that you hear this prayer of thanksgiving and that it may bring joy and praise to you. Father, we thank you for our ability to communicate with you through prayer. A creation you have blessed us with that should be used more than just on a daily basis. Father, we thank you for your ability to protect a child when he needs protection. Father, we thank you for your ability to change, to change people, maybe someone here today. We thank you for your ability to restore the person who needs restoration, either from their past, from sinful ways. Father, we, we thank you for your encouragement and strength. And if you're well, we ask you that 
you give strength to a weak and a sad soul. Father, we thank you for all the blessings that you give us. The blessing that you give us each day. And Father, we thank you for the blessing that it is to repent of our sins because of what Christ did. Father, I now ask that the sermon prepared this morning give us knowledge, a wonderful knowledge, a wonderful knowledge that that we may attain and use for your glory. Father, we thank you for all these things, and we thank you for your Son, Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, it's a delight to be with you this morning. If you do not already have your Bible to the book, open to the book of Jonah, I would ask you to go there. Today marks the end of a four-week series on uh, the book of Jonah, and I would invite you back next week as we will take on uh, the first of the five solas, sola scriptura, as we look toward the 500th uh, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Imagine for a moment we went to a kitchen far, far away. And in this kitchen far, far away, there's this bowl of flour named King Arthur. And Arthur's sitting there thinking, how lovely I am in my whiteness. How lovely I am in my fluffiness. And then all of a sudden, Arthur feels himself being lifted and transported to the other side of the kitchen, where he all of a sudden comes in contact with ooey, gooey Mr. Egg. He pleads, why? What's the point? This seems illogical nonsensical, I'm perfect, I'm white, I'm fluffy. Why combine me with this thing? Well, obviously it's a pitiful story. We know that it doesn't really matter what Mr. Flower or Mr. Egg really cares. It's the baker that is the one that's in charge and has all to say about this. But imagine for a moment, even further now, you walked into that kitchen and you see the baker, arms on the table, leaning over, talking to the flower, explaining to him, this is why I'm going to combine you with Mr. Egg. At best, the man would be insane. We would look at him and say, you're crazy. It can't hear you. What's the point? It's a mere object. You're the baker. Do your thing. Well, this morning we come to Jonah chapter 4 and we will recognize clearly that the character of God toward us, his creation, is oftentimes viewed as illogical, nonsensical, misunderstood. In fact, the nonsensical but supernatural mercy of God upon sinners should elicit a response of humility and worship. But does it? Oftentimes not. Oftentimes God's character of mercy and kindness or whatever else it might be elicits actually a sinful response. If you're taking notes this morning, I've divided the passage just in two sections. You'll see it from 310 to 44 and then we'll look at 45 through verse 11. Point number one, 310 through 44, God's mercy upon sinners does not make sense. 
God's mercy upon sinners does not make sense. You see there in verse 10, when God saw what they, who's they? The Ninevites. The Ninevites have just received a message from Jonah the prophet. Repent, 40 days you shall be overthrown. Eight worded message, the simplest sermon maybe someone could have given. God grants them repentance. And here God notes that change and how they turned from their evil way. And God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This Hebrew word for disaster basically means to indicate a turnabout or to turn over. If you think about Genesis 19, we see that same word used when God uh, sends disaster upon the sinful country, the sinful city that is Sodom and Gomorrah for their, over, for their sin. Essentially what we're seeing is when God overthrows a city or people in judgment, he upends them. He turns them over and over. He puts them in the spin cycle, if you will, of his judgment. They're completely undone, if not to the point that they are destroyed. And we've seen throughout the Bible, if you've read from Genesis at least to this point, that oftentimes God does relent of a disaster upon his people when someone stands and either Stands for them in prayer or the people repent. You can think of Moses interceding upon the behalf of the nation of Israel in Exodus 32. While Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, the people are down worshiping a golden calf. Moses come down. God says, I'm going to wipe them out. Moses says, no, please do not relent. And God does. In fact, Jonah and the people of Israel would know very clearly that God's promise of dealing kindly with them and other nations when they repent is clear. Jeremiah 18.7 talks about this. That if a nation will repent, God will relent. God will hold back his disaster upon them. Well, our promise as believers this morning... That God will hold back his punishment upon our sin is not in Jeremiah 18.7. It's, it's found in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is our assurance of how God will deal with us as sinners when we sin and repent and confess our sin. 1 John 1.9, he is faithful and just. Why is he faithful? Because the blood of Christ was faithful. Therefore, he is faithful to forgive us our sin. Continually, over and over, it's seen in the work of Christ. So our assurance this morning that if we repent, God will relent is in the shed blood of Christ and his power over sin and death at the resurrection. Now, God's promise to relent is rooted in his character. Jonah knows this. See, Jonah knows the holiness and justice of God. But we this morning have to ask the question, why does God relent? Is it because the Ninevites now deserved his grace? Of course not. They had stopped their wicked ways, but had they somehow removed the stain of sin upon their hearts? Uh, No, not at all. Why did God turn from executing judgment on these deserving sinners? The Ninevites repented of their sin. God relented of punishing them in their sin. He relented... But that does not mean he removed the punishment. He just shifted the punishment from the Ninevites to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 18, 19. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Does God hate your sin? Yes. Does God desire to punish that sin? Yes. Should it be punished? Yes. Was it punished? Yes. At the cross of Jesus Christ. So as a believer, our assurance is in that blood. God's promise to relent upon our repentance is as sure as his eternal work of punishing his perfect son Christ for our rebellion and refusal to repent. Now notice in verse 1. Of chapter 4. Jonah is exceedingly displeased. The Hebrew word for this exceeding displeased. Is the exact same Hebrew word. For the evil that the Ninevites had turned from in verse 10. And the disaster. That same word disaster. Meaning the same thing of this exceedingly displeased of Jonah. And since we see the that the fact that the Ninevites have re- repented of their evil, God has relented of the disaster he's going to send upon them. And Jonah is the only one left holding the bag in a sense. He's the only one left with evil. His attitude is horrible. And instead of repentance from his attitude, he sinks into self-pity and even self-centeredness. And he prays. Notice his prayer. I want to just draw your attention to two things. Look at the prayer there. And he prayed, verse 2, to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Now we get to the heart of why he fled. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. First thing I want you to notice about Jonah's prayer is that the... The underline the nature and character of God that every prophet of God would know in even every Israelite would have known is the character described in verse two. Where do we know this? Well, in Exodus 34, the Lord descended, it said, in the cloud, stood with him there. That's Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And almost every prophet repeats that. Micah does in chapter seven. Nahum does in chapter one. Joel does in chapter two. David, the psalmist, picks up in Psalm 145, verse 9. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. It's picked up in Psalm 136, where over and over and over again we're told his steadfast love, his mercy endures forever. This is what they would have known. That God would have repented. Excuse me, relented. This is the nature and character of God that he desired for his people to know. When we think of the God of the Old Testament, too often I think we think, well, that's the God of judgment. And now we finally get the God of love in the New Testament. But what we see clearly is God desires to communicate to his people and to his enemies in the Old Testament that he is the God of who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And on the flip side of that coin, that he is holy and just. 
Second thing I want you to notice is that though Jonah's anger is wrong, it is at least logical. It's wrong, but it's at least logical in the economy of God. Let me explain this. Notice how Jonah responds in anger. At precisely the moment that God's anger is subsided against the Ninevites, Jonah's kicks in full gear. And notice the character of God is that which makes him angry. People oftentimes get angry at God, thinking, well, if he just wasn't a God of justice, if he just wasn't a God of sovereignty, and he was just a God of love, then I would be interested in following him. But notice Jonah's anger. He gets angry over God's graciousness. He gets angry over God's mercy. He gets angry over God's compassion and his slowness to anger, his abounding love. Well, why does he get angry at that? Because he knows the truth. Bad behavior deserves to be punished. So he's thinking, well, the Ninevites, those guys did a bunch of bad things. That should lead to a bad end. He's thinking at least somewhat logically, though sinfully. And yet here, it does not happen. Their sin doesn't lead to a bad end in the story of Jonah here. We've got to remember that God is perfect and we are not. He's the creator, we're the creation. He's the potter, we're the clay. He can do what he wants. His justice over sin is logical as a perfect God. Jonah's anger is rooted in his understanding of God's justice as a perfect God. Therefore, he notes what seems illogical in man's view. That God, why would God have mercy on people that don't deserve mercy? If everything's fair in this world, then God would not have patience, kindness, compassion, love, steadfastly, For sinners who repeatedly rebel against him. At least Jonah's putting two and two together. And yet that's what happens. God has mercy, compassion, love, kindness, graciousness. On wretched, repeated offenders like us. Every single day. That doesn't make any sense. It's nonsensical. It's illogical. But you know, there's something actually even more illogical than that. And that is that we as Christians, we as believers in Jesus Christ, we as those who know this kindness of God, in our sin, delay to throw ourselves in repentance upon His mercy. That's crazy. We have evidence all throughout the Bible in pictured in Christ of his mercy and kindness toward us as sinners. And what do we do? We either cover our eyes and say, I'll hold on to my sin. I love it more than God. Or we cover our eyes in shame and said, surely he can't love me. The last thing we tend to do is throw ourselves upon his mercy. That's crazy. Why would we not fling ourselves upon the mercy and compassion and steadfast love of God? It's insanity for us not to do it. It's assured for us that he will forgive us. Not because we're going to get it right, but because Christ was perfect for for us. Now notice Jonah's hardness of heart in verse 3. It's gotten to such a point he'd rather just die. 
Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Almost to the point of basically saying, over my dead body will I stand here and see this evil nation gain your undeserved mercy. Just end it. When God's mercy and steadfast love was extended to him in the belly of the fish, chapter 2, verse 8, Jonah is a man most thankful. When God uses that same kindness, extending it toward others, Jonah responds with anger. As one commentator puts it, this living miracle of God's grace, Jonah, disdains his new lease of life. You can see Jonah's pride just oozing out of every pore here. Just like ours does. Jonah's anger concerning God's compassion on, on sinners, even, even those that are his enemies, is rooted in seeing himself and it is rooted when we have that same pride in seeing ourselves in a different light than God sees us and even sees our enemies. He sees us as sinners. We would prefer not to think that. We would think, let's divide up the world and all of history even into two camps, two teams. Well, the bad guys versus the good guys. Okay, great. Looking at all of history, we'll put Hitler on the bad guy team. Mussolini, you're over there. Kim Jong-un, join the ranks. I'll be over here. Best friend, maybe. The nice elderly woman crossing the street. The enemy's certainly over there. The guy I don't like, certainly over there. The Republican, or if you're on the other side, the Democrat. That one's over there. I'll take this side over here. The good guys are the ones that God loves and the bad guys are the ones that will go to hell. Right? That's the way it's supposed to work. That's what we're going to do in our pride. That's exactly what Jonah's doing here. Those are the bad guys. We're the good guys. Give us grace. Why are you giving them grace? Except when we do this in our pride and divide things up, we have one problem. The Bible doesn't divide it up that way. He doesn't give us two categories of people, good and bad. It only gives us one. And so we're, we're sitting as bench warmers, if you will, of evil. And if your epitome of evil is someone like Hitler, he's the starting pitcher for the team. But you're sitting on the bench with him on your team. You go to the huddle and you put all hands in. One, two, three, team. And the hand below you is Mussolini's or whoever you want to put on there. And the hand above you is the rapist who murdered a woman. That's the team you're on. There's not a good team. That's the team we're on every single morning. Every single evening. No one is excluded from the birth stain of sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Period. There's no one. Good. No. Not one. Period. All men are liars, the Bible tells us. Period. If you break the law at one point, James 2.10, you're accountable for all of it. Period. Well, I'm not coming to this church again. I came to church to get some encouragement. You're not giving me anything. That's right. Because if I was to tell you anything other than the rotten core that is within us, that is sin, I would be lying to you this morning. I wouldn't be able to give you a bit of hope. And so all I can tell you is that you're in the same boat I am and every other man ever born on earth is. Rotten to the core in sin. 
And that gives us good news because there's nobody here that could make it out of that except for the one sent for us, Jesus Christ. The perfect Son of Man. The one who has given us grace upon grace in His death. If we think of ourselves anything more than a rotten sinner, we don't need the gospel. A a well person doesn't like the doctor. A sick person loves him. If we don't recognize the incurable disease that is sin, then we won't recognize the miracle that is Christ taking sin and giving us perfection. So I have a question for you this morning. Do you see, if you're here this morning, do you see the rotten core that is your heart of sin that demands God in His justice punish you for eternity in hell? Do you, have you, Submitted, repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for eternal life. And if you have not, may I ask you to look upon the compassion God is giving you in the fact that you are alive right now and under the sound of my voice. Will you not take that opportunity and repent of your sin and come to Christ in saving faith? The promise is there and it is sure for us. Now notice, Jonah is this heart of pride here, our heart of pride similarly. Matthew eighteen twenty three through 35, we have the parable to illustrate the kingdom of heaven. And the parable goes something like this. You can read it. A man owes a debt that he's just, astro- that's astronomical, unable to be paid. He goes and pleads for mercy. The man who to whom he owes the debt gives him mercy. This gentleman now, the one whom having his debt Forgiven turns and finds someone else that in his life that owes a much smaller debt and refuses to extend grace to this man. Jonah here is prefiguring this narrative in Matthew 18 and we oftentimes are the postlude to this narrative. We have received mercy from God as rebels against him and yet we withhold forgiveness and mercy toward one another who has wronged us. The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree here. Jonah is just like his sinful father, the first Adam. And we are just like our sinful father, the first Adam. And Jonah and every other father before and after. Brothers and sisters, you have no right to God's mercy upon you as a sinner. You have no right to God's patience with you. You have no right for his grace toward you. And so who are we to withhold undeservingly? Mercy toward others. Who are we to withhold from others what has undeservedly been given to us? So is there someone in your life this morning, this week, that you are refusing to forgive and instead you rather hold a grudge? Well, Jonah asks, gets asked a question by God. Do you do well to be angry? The NASB uh, phrases it this way. I think it's a little easier to understand. Do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? Really? Come up with a good one. Is God's graciousness, mercy, patience, abundant, steadfast love upon sinners really a good reason to be angry, Jonah? Is the character of God displayed to the unsaved a good reason to be angry? And Jonah makes the wisest choice of the whole book and does not answer the question. These are reasons for humility and worship, and yet they elicited anger from Jonah. Point number two is 5 through 11. 
A picture of God's mercy in the face of our rebellion. A picture of God's mercy in the face of our rebellion. Now here we have to be reminded that the main character in the book of Jonah is not Jonah. If you are to go to a, a symphony an orchestra, and listen to an orchestra play, and, and they're maybe playing the last few bars of Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, and you're staring at the flute, and, and you're thinking, well, this is supposed to be grand and glorious, no offense if you play the flute, but you're thinking, I'm not getting anything out of this. Well, you're looking at an instrument that's not making the right sound, the, 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 making the most sound. Look to the drum, look to the brass, look to something that's blasting the glory of God. And if we're looking at Jonah, we're left at the end of this book going, I I don't get it. But if we look at the central character of Jonah, God being that central character, what we see is an amazing grand crescendo of his glory displayed in his mercy toward Jonah in 5 through 11. Jonah verse 5 goes out, into uh, this away from the city into into full on sulk mode here there's not a necessity to think that 5 through 11 is actually in chronological order with verse 4 in likelihood 5 through 11 was taking place before verses 1 through 4 during the 40 day period following his message to the people of Nineveh and, and, and 1 through 4 is actually after the 40-day period. But what is clear is that verse 1 and 4 and 5 through 11 are, are two separate incidents. So Jonah goes out of the city, sits down in the, the sand, as it were, the desert. And he builds his own shelter. And by this time, Jonah is, is so pathetic, he can't even build a reasonable shelter to hide himself from the sun. And so again, God responds. He Appoints a plant. Notice that this is the second appointing of Jonah. The first was the fish. Now we have the plant. And there's all sorts of conjecture about what type. Probably something to the effect of a castor oil plant. Something that was freestanding. Had large leaves. Could provide shade. Grows quickly. Verse 6. This plant comes up. And you'll notice a shift if you're looking at your Bible. You'll notice everything before verse 6. When Jonah's talking to God, he's using, in a, a particular word, Yahweh, he's using a very intimate word for God. You probably see it in your Bible as Lord, L, capital O, capital R, capital, capital D. But from, from verse 6 all the way really to verse 9, there's a shift. Excuse me, verse 10. There's a shift away from this a personal, close terminology to more of one that is general in terminology. He's God the creator, verse 7. He's God the merciful one to foreigners, etc. But he's, he, Jonah's not speaking to him in an intimate fashion. And you notice he, he recognizes that God does do this work. He's exceedingly glad because of the plant, verse 6. Or he's extremely happy because of this plant. Jonah's got extremes of emotion all over the place. Here, a few verses ago, he was extremely angry, and now he's extremely happy. He's a selfish man. Hypocrisy is all over the place here. He is not recognizing that the, both the salvation of the Ninevites and his salvation, in a sense, from his physical suffering is coming from the hand of God, who has not given up on Jonah, but actually continues to show him mercy. You really should think that the book of Jonah should stop at verse 4. I would stop it at verse 4. 
Three strikes, you're out, Jonah. But no, God's mercy continues. Verse 6, you see that God brings this up to save him from his discomfort. That's the same Hebrew word for this evil and disaster. God appointed a plant to cover Jonah in his physical ailment. But what Jonah needed was not a physical covering. He needed a spiritual shade. He needed a spiritual comfort. Brothers and sisters, God has provided shade for you and I in spite of our sinful evil. And it's the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. Erected for all of history to the point it is so important that anyone in the Old Testament can see it in the distance and anybody in the New Testament, including us, fall in its shadow. That continues to provide us spiritual comfort in the face of our sin. The cross is the only means of grace that can actually deal with the discomfort of our sin. The evil of our hearts. So the sign of the plant, the plant is the sign of God's favor and the cross is the sign of God's favor toward us. What Jonah had done was nothing to have merited God's favor. What we have done in our sin has nothing to merit the favor of God. And yet we as Christians, our sign of God's favor is the cross and the empty tomb. God has chosen to set his love upon us. Well, things shift yet again. Verse 7. Jonah is exceedingly happy. Extremely. And now dawn comes. God appoints the second thing in verse chapter 4. A worm. He points to this worm who eats this plant. It withers. When the sun rises, verse 8, God appoints a third thing in chapter 4. His highlights are growing and growing. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. It is as almost as if God is saying, Okay, Jonah, you want fairness? Let me give you a taste. You want it like you deserve and like everybody else should deserve his justice. Let me give you just a small inkling of what it is like. And Jonah can't even stand a slight taste. He's ready to die at a mere drop of God's justice, of God's fairness. He has placed all his happiness in verse 6 upon the circumstances of his life. What a poor foundation for our happiness as well. What circumstances, what blessings, what people has God put in your life that have not met your expectations? Or that he has taken away? And that we are so quick to be ungrateful for? John Owen, the famous Puritan, said this, The greatest contest of heaven and earth is about the affections of the poor worm which we call man. And you see this on display here. The poor worm that we call man that is represented in Jonah here should just be cast aside by every logical sense of the word. And yet, God is pursuing him. What is so incredible is that God even uses the discomfort of Jonah. Even puts Jonah in place of discomfort with a view of revealing himself to Jonah. God is here mustering the forces of nature. 
We've got the waves in chapter 1 and the fish in chapter 1 and the plant and the worm and the scorching east wind all to gain the attention of one worm, Jonah. A sinner in full rebellion against him in order to display his mercy. What is clear here is that God is much more interested in the holiness and relationship of Jonah than he is in the comfort and happiness of Jonah. And some might even be tempted to think, well, if God would create a wind and a worm and a plant just for me, I would love to follow him. I'll look to him. But he already did that for you. He did so much more than just mustering the natural order. What is much more loving is the nature of the work of Christ for us. To save us for our for all eternity. Matthew 18. We see this love of God manifested in Christ in the parable of the 99 sheep and the one lost. And here God is pursuing the one rebel that is his, Jonah. And so he questions him again, verse 9. Do you have a good reason to be angry for the plant? And Jonah finally responds, yes. Yeah, I sure do. He's frustrated. And ironically, Jonah finds himself... To be compassionate, finally, after four chapters on something perishing. Wasn't, wasn't compassionate upon the perishing Ninevites. But now he finds compassion upon a plant. Upon a plant. It's as if he's saying, what's the point of living in a world where the innocent plant dies? What's the point of living, living if nothing seems fair? And it's a good question. Many have asked it and actually many have taken their life as the answer to it. But we must be careful. Is God unfair or is our view of fair tainted by sin? Jonah wanted fair and when God allowed just a bit of fairness to play out, not much, just a bit, Jonah could not handle it. So should God not have compassion? Should God actually have compassion? Yes, he is God. He's welcome to have compassion. He's welcome to have pity. And yet, oftentimes, we would rather that be upon us and not others. Me first, please. If Jonah could show concern for a plant, how much more could the God who created the people of Nineveh and even the animals, you'll notice, 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left and the animals, much cattle, How much more should God show concern for their lives and supply mercy? The kindness of God toward us unsaved in our sin, blind and helpless. And that's essentially what there are. There's a bunch of conjecture about who these 120,000 people are. Maybe they're children. Maybe they're babies. But irregardless of their children, babies, or mature adults, what they are is blind in their sin to the point that they can't see the right way to go. Right or left. They're spiritually dead. Thus Christ says in Luke 23, forgive them for they know not what they do. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.13 received mercy for his ignorance as an unbeliever. Is the judgment of God, however severe on this earth, in any way injustice when we consider that he is perfect and we are not? Is the judgment of God, however severe it may seem on this earth, any less than we deserve? 
is the judgment of God, however severe it may seem, as severe as it deserves to be. As in eternity in hell under his wrath, fully unleashed on the wicked. Is it unjust? It is not. A hundred people dying in an earthquake? Horrible. Is that unjust? It is not. Is God as control in that situation as any other? Yes, he is. Does that remove his perfection? No, it does not. If our hearts are deceitfully, even desperately wicked, and our righteousness is not our own, but the righteousness of Christ granted to us, should we not then see everything, and we should say everything, no matter how bad, as an evidence of mercy and grace, and that we deserve punishment so much more severely as sinners, that eternity is not long enough to pay the price. Everything less is actually a severe mercy, rather than a severe punishment the closing question from god to jonah is not answered you notice that we don't know what happened to jonah or how he answered the question but it was directed toward jonah and it's directed toward us this morning at the heart of the question is the issue of whether our hearts will reflect the heart of our father god or our father adam one is the heart of mercy the other is the heart of sin will we love others will we spread the good news of jesus christ even to our enemies Is missions, evangelism, the telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others a burden? Or is it a priority of your heart? Is it our delight to repent as much as it is God's delight when we do repent? It's a question that forces us to examine our hearts this morning. And we find the grace and motivation to change, if necessary, lies in looking to the gift of eternal life given to us by grace. So this morning, if you're from Fredericksburg or wherever you may be visiting from another town this morning and you're thinking, well, what are some practical ways that I can be ready to share the good news, to have that heart of omissions and evangelism, of mercy upon sinners? What, can I, what's, what things can I do? How can I develop a heart that imitates God heart, God's heart of compassion for the lost? And here's just a few things. Jot them down or don't. Doesn't matter. Number one, Be sure you know the good news well enough to communicate it. Pick up a book. I suggest What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert. Excellent little book. Helps us understand how to communicate the gospel. Are we ready to do that? Another suggestion, pray. Pray for your neighbors, your co-workers. Pray for your enemies. Pray for the people that don't like you. Pray for the people you don't like. Pray for those already in your life. Pray that God would give you a boldness and a clear opportunity to share the gospel. Give. You can give. Give give to missionaries. Give to support the missionaries we support here. Ed Underwood and Mark and Sharon Welch and Evan Took. Pray for our missionaries. Give to the church. Benevolence ministry is increasingly always at every church, including FCF. Closing quote from a man by the name of Leslie Allen on his commentary on Jonah. Quote, A Jonah lurks in every Christian heart, whimpering his insidious message of smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, and exclusive solidarity. He that has ears to hear, let him hear and allow the saving love of God, which has been outpoured in his own heart, to remold his thinking and social orientation. Close quote. Let's pray.
God, you are merciful to us sinners. We deserve to be destroyed. And yet we've been given eternal life. It doesn't make sense. But it's true. And that truth is ours. And that truth is for eternity. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gospel. We ask that you would transform our hard hearts. Whether it's in belief or in unbelief. Grant us grace. Father, we pray that we would imitate you more clearly this week. That the world would know. We do not live for ourselves. We desire to even die to ourselves. And to live for Christ is gain. We thank you for the sure and steady and immovable anchor that is Christ for us. We ask now that as we close in song, minister to our hearts this word. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and close with a new song. Christ the sure and steady anchor.